Good evening, and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 20th, 2022. I am so glad to be able to be with you tonight. We have the chance to study together. I've been looking forward to this all week, and here we are. Thank you for joining. Vayishma Yisro, our Parsha, the Parsha of Yisro, begins with these words, And Yisro heard. Vayishma Yisro Kohen Midyan. Yisro was a priest in Midyan, an important person, a leader, a respected figure. Chosein Moshe, he was also the father-in-law of Moshe. Moshe was married to Yisro's daughter. Vayishma Yisro, Yisro heard. Eis kol asher asa Everything that God had done for Moshe and for his people Israel, that God had taken the Jewish people out of Egypt and all the other miracles that God had done. And Yisro heard this. And Yisro came with Moshe's wife, his daughter, and Moshe's sons, Yisro's grandsons, El Hamidbar Asher to the desert where the Jewish people were. Remember, the Jewish people traveling through the desert. So Yisro leaves his home, where he is a respected, admired, important figure, and he leaves and he goes to the desert to be with Moshe and the Jewish people. Vayomer Yisro, and Yisro says on arriving there, Baruch Hashem, blessed is God. God miraculously saved you from the hand of Paro, from the hand of Egypt. God freed you from under the persecution of Egypt. Atayadati. Now I know, Yisro says, Ki gadol Hashem mikol Elohim. God is greater than all of the so-called deities. Ki badavar Hashem zadu alehem. Through all of these events, God shows that He is the one who is the true God, and all of those false gods, those idols are meaningless. Okay? Vayishma Yisro, and Yisro heard. Hold on one minute. Yisro heard? He wasn't the only one that heard. Everybody heard. The splitting of the Red Sea, the Jewish people going out of Egypt, this was big news. Everybody heard about this. Why does the Torah tell us by Yishma Yisro? Yisro heard as if he's the only one. Everyone heard about this. The answer is very simple and it's very deep. What was unique about Yisro is that he heard and he took it to heart. He acted on it. He came to join the Jewish people and to praise God. 
And this is such an important lesson that Yisro teaches us in this portion. Because the truth is, especially today, we hear so much. We are bombarded with information. But the real question is, which pieces of information do we not only hear, but understand and internalize and act on? Because if we're not doing that, just hearing makes very little impact. There is a mitzvah, a commandment in the Torah, of Talmud Torah, to study Torah. It's a very important mitzvah. It's what we, you and I are doing right now. There is a special mitzvah of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, that's expressed in the Talmud in the following ways. The Talmud says, Shloshim Yom Kodem Hachak, 30 days before a holiday, Darshim Velomdin Binyani Hachag. We have a mitzvah to study and review the laws of that holiday. For example, 30 days before Pesach, which happens to be Purim, that's the time to start reviewing the laws, to review the Haggadah, to start to understand a little deeper, to get ready. Let me ask you a question. What about the day after Pesach? Is it still a mitzvah to study the laws of Pesach? Of course. The mitzvah of Talmud Torah, of studying Torah, applies to every subject at every moment. So why is it better, why is it a special mitzvah to study Torah in the 30 days before the holiday? Why is that better than studying about the holiday the day after it ends? So the answer is obvious because learning Torah ideally should not just be an intellectual activity, but it should be put into practice. As our rabbis teach, Lilmod Almanas Lasos, we learn in order to be able to put it into practice. Yes, of course, there is a mitzvah to study Torah, even if it is not practically applicable. Yes, of course, that's true. But there is a special mitzvah to learn Torah in a way that we can then immediately put it into practice. Because when we study Torah, it should have an impact. It should leave an imprint on how we live. In former times, it was more common than today to have a person whose profession was a magid. Now, literally, the, the title magid means a storyteller. But a Magid, especially in Eastern Europe, 
had a very specific role. He was a learned man who traveled from place to place and he would speak in shuls. Not a learned discourse, not practical details of observance, but stories. Stories that would inspire and uplift the audience to greater piety, to deeper trust in God and connection to God. In our day, I would say, Rabbi Pesach Krohn fills that role if you've ever had the privilege to hear him speak, and it is a privilege. Not coincidentally, the title of one of Rabbi Krohn's books is The Magid Speaks. I had the opportunity once, many years ago, to meet and hear a real Magid, Rabbi Shalom Shvadron. It was over 40 years ago. I was single. I was studying in yeshiva, living in Jerusalem. And one Friday night, the Magid, Rav Shvadron, was speaking in my neighborhood, in Bayev Vagan. And I went to listen. He was a character. He was a great storyteller, a big personality, dramatic voice. The audience was spellbound. And it was a great experience that I remember to this day of this specific component of Jewish life. So allow me to share with you now a story. I did not hear this story directly myself. I heard it from Rabbi Melech Biederman about Rabbi Shalom Shvadron. As you might imagine, Rabbi Shvadron always had the perfect story to illustrate the point he wanted to make. And he was entertaining and enlightening and inspiring. And he was a much sought after speaker in his day. He was unforgettable. Once it happened that two men were walking down the street and one said to the other, are you going to hear Rav Shvadron speak tonight? And the other said, no, I've heard him a few times and he will probably repeat what he has said before. So there's no point to me going. Unbeknownst to these two young men, Rav Shvadron himself was actually walking just behind them and he heard what they said. So he addressed them and he said in his inimitable style, 
let me tell you a story. There was once a man driving a car and he was stuck in traffic on a narrow street. So he looks ahead to see what the problem is. And he sees in front of him a car stopped blocking traffic. And the driver is sitting relaxed, leaning to the side. He's talking on the phone. He's smoking a cigarette and he's just relaxing in the car, just middle of the block, middle of the road, seemingly oblivious to the traffic jam that he's creating behind him. And all the cars are honking, honking, honking. But this man continues to sit and he's talking on the phone and he finishes his cigarette. It's not moving. And everyone is honking. So finally, the man in the stopped car gets out and he turns to the drivers who are honking and he yells at them, why do you keep honking? I heard you the first time. It's enough. Why are you still honking? And the other drivers are very angry. And one of them says, don't tell us you heard. Move your car. So Rav Shadron says to these two young men, he says, yes, you might have heard before what I'm going to say tonight, but have you acted on it? Has it become a part of you? Because until then, you haven't really listened. We need to learn from Yisro when we hear something important, instructive, enlightening. It's not enough just to hear it. We have to move the car. So Yisro comes to visit Moshe and the Jewish people. And he watches what his son-in-law Moshe does. Moshe is sitting and the people are lined up from the morning to the night waiting to adjudicate their disputes, answer their questions, and Moshe's father-in-law Yisro says to him, It's not good what you're doing. You're going to get worn out and the people are going to get worn out. It's too difficult for you to be able to be the only person answering everybody's questions. You're not able to do this by yourself. You have to delegate. You need to choose people from the from the from 
the congregation, from the community, from the Jewish people, appoint individuals, and you'll have other people adjudicating disputes and answering questions. And they'll take care of the main stuff, the normal everyday stuff, and the very, very difficult questions, of course, will still come to you, but you'll share the burden. This will make it easier on you. And the entire nation will also then be able to attain its goal of peace. Rabbi Jonathan Sachs points out, it's very interesting these words that Yisro says to Moshe, Lo tov hadavar, it is not good, asher hataoseh, what you're doing. It's interesting that there's only one other place in the entire Torah where those words, lo tov, are used. Lo tov, it's not good. The only other place is at the very beginning of the Torah, where God says, lo tov heyos ha'adam levado, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make for him a helpmeet, ezer konegdo, a partner. Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve. Clearly, the use of this unique phrase only twice in the Torah shows us we cannot live alone. We cannot lead alone. But let me share with you the insight of the Nitziv. And that's the acronym for his name, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, a great scholar in the 1800s. And he says something that is very unexpected and counterintuitive, but a tremendously deep insight. And he starts by asking the following question. Yisro sees that Moshe is the only one answering all these questions. And he gives advice you have to delegate, share it with others, appoint others to help you. So it's clear that Yisro's advice helped Moshe because Moshe was becoming exhausted. The work was too much. Nabal Tivol, you're going to get worn out. You're going to black, you're going to, you're going to wear yourself out. Moshe needed help. It's a little bit less easy to understand the last comment that Yisro makes. Where Yisro says to Moshe, if you follow my suggestion, not only will you not become so exhausted, but v'gam kol ha'am al-makomo yavovishalom. The people will also reach their place of peace. How does this system benefit the people? I understand it benefits Moshe, but as far as the people are, con are concerned, they would have been answered by Moshe. Now they're going to be answered by somebody else. How does this lead to peace for the people? So before I share 
the Netziv's answer, let me provide a bit of an introduction. In Jewish law, in any civil case between two parties, there are two ways that the court, the Bektin, can address this dispute. There are two processes that could be used to adjudicate the dispute. One is called din, which means law, which means to decide the case based on the strict application of the formal laws that apply to the facts of the case. And then the second process is pshara. Pshara means compromise or mediation. Two separate processes that could be used to arrive at a decision. The classic treatment of this subject is a famous essay based on a major address that was given by the Rav, Rabbi Yosef Soloveitchik. And he writes as follows. Din, deciding a case based on strict law, pits one party against the other. The Dayan, the judge, analyzes the relevant facts of the case and applies the appropriate legal sanctions as prescribed by the codes. The law is administered with cold impartiality and its decisions are dictated by objective data. One party emerges the victor. His case is vindicated. The plea of the other is denied. In Pshara, however, when there is a compromise, when there is mediation, social harmony is the primary concern of the Dayan, the judge. The fine points of the law and the determination of precise facts are of secondary importance. The goal is not to be juridically astute, but to be socially healing. So the Nitziv begins his answer by quoting the Talmud. The Gemara in Sanhedrin asks the following question. Which of these two options is preferable? Is it preferable to adjudicate a case based on din? Or is it preferable to utilize pshara, mediation, compromise? There are two options. Which is preferred? First, the Talmud quotes the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer. Rabbi Eliezer says, din is preferable. And he uses a phrase, Yikov hadin eshahar, let the law pierce the mountain. Let the chips fall where they may. Strict justice. That's the only way to go. Rabbi Yehuda says, no, pshara is to be preferred. Compromise, mediation is the preferred way. And he bases this on a Pasuk, a verse in the Torah. The Pasuk says, the prophet says, Ha'emes v'hashalom ehavo. God loves truth and peace. So Rabbi Yehuda says, where there is truth, strict justice based on truth, 
there is no peace. Where there is peace, there is no strict justice. How is it possible for truth, law, and peace to coexist? How can you love both of them at the same time? Pshara, mediation. Now, that dispute in the Talmud is reflected in the difference of character between Moshe on the one hand and Aharon on the other. Moshe represented his motto was Din, law. Aharon was known as one who was Ohev Shalom, Verodev Shalom. He loved peace and he pursued peace. Now, in this dispute, the practical ruling follows the opinion of Rabbi Yehuda. Pshara, compromise, mediation is the preferred way to settle a civil dispute between two parties. On one condition. As long as the judge does not yet know who is right and who is wrong. At the very beginning of the case, when there is uncertainty about who is right and who is wrong, it's the proper thing to suggest, let's try mediation. Let's try to find a compromise, a middle point that you can both gain something and lose something. But once the judge already knows in his mind that this one is right, he is not allowed to pursue mediation because that would be a suppression of justice. There is a clear, correct person and an incorrect person. Okay, that's the background. Now listen to how ingeniously the Nitziv applies this. The Nitziv says Moshe preferred din, strict justice. It was not in his nature to look for a compromise because not only was Moshe a prophet, but he was also the lawgiver par excellence. He was a person who from the first moments of the litigants opening their mouths, he knew almost instantly which was innocent and which was guilty. Who had right on their side and who did not. And therefore, it was impossible for Moshe to mediate because that's only permitted when the judge does not already have a clear idea of who is right and who is wrong. Now, listen to this conclusion because it's astonishing. By delegating the judicial functions to others, Moshe was going to bring in other people 
exceptional people, knowledgeable people, but no one with Moshe's intuitive knowledge of law and justice. There would be people who would be able to propose an equitable solution. They would be able to engage in pshara because they would not at the very first moment immediately know who was right and who was wrong. So they, the normal judges, would be able to make sure that both sides were heard, both could gain, even though both would lose. There would be a compromise but both would feel that the result was fair. In the words of the Rav, in its highest sense, justice obtains when people are reconciled, when there's a compromise. And that's why Moshe delegating some of this work to others would not only help Moshe avoid total exhaustion and burnout, it would also help the people reach their place in peace. Just think about how profound this is. Moshe is called the Ish Elohim, the man of God. But the Nitziv says there was one thing that Moshe could not do that others who were less great than him in every respect could achieve. They could bring peace to contending parties. They could create conflict resolution because they did not know the law as deeply and clearly as Moshe did. They had to listen to both sides. They had to come up with a compromise that both sides would see as fair. A mediator has different gifts from a lawgiver. More modest, perhaps, but sometimes no less necessary. So what emerges from this fascinating analysis is that according to the Nitziv, ultimately, each one of us, without exception, has a role to play, has a gift to offer that no one else can offer. In Pirkei Avos, Ben Azai expresses this so beautifully when he says, Alti buzz l'chol adam, never look down upon any person. She'ein l'cha adam, she'ein lo shah, because there is no person who does not have his or her hour. There is no person who does not have some way in which they have a gift that someone else will not have. Here is how T.S. Eliot put it. In order to arrive 
at what you are not. You must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. Okay, so in our Parsha, we have the Aserah Dibros, the Ten Commandments. This is the unprecedented revelation of God before the entire Jewish people. It had never happened before. It will never happen again on this scale. These words of the Ten Commandments are perhaps the most famous words in human history. So let's look at number 10, the final message in this unprecedented, unique opportunity for God to address the entire Jewish people and the world. What is God's parting message? What is the final lesson that God teaches? Number 10. Do not covet your fellow's house. Do not covet the spouse of your fellow or his servant or his animal or anything that someone else has. You should not want what your fellow has. That's the final message. Number 10, let me pose a few questions. Imagine for a moment, maybe not right now, but soon, you're invited to someone's house for dinner. You can't take any of their food because it belongs to them. If you shouldn't want or you shouldn't take what someone else has, that means you should just sit there at dinner and not take anything. Or let's say you pass by a store. You can't want to go inside and buy something because it belongs to them. So I'm not supposed to want something that belongs to somebody else. What if you see something that belongs to someone else and you admire it? You can't go to the store and buy the same thing for yourself because you're not supposed to want what someone else has? So the Rambam, Maimonides, explains the mitzvah, which is much more precise. First, the Rambam says, Whoever covets what someone else has but does not want to give up, even if a person is willing to pay for it, but the other person doesn't want to part with it, but you want to take it from them. And so you pressure them and you insist and you offer more money and you make it impossible for them to refuse, 
even though you have paid for it, you have violated lo sachmod, do not covet. The prohibition applies when you want something that another person has and you go to whatever lengths are necessary to pressure them to part with it when they do not want to part with it. But you pressure them, you insist until they finally give in. That's a violation of lo sachmo, do not covet. Then the Ramam goes one step further. There is a second prohibition. Call Hamis Ave, whoever desires something that belongs to another. In other words, you have something and you do not want to give it to me and you do not want to sell it to me, but I desire to have it. I want to take it from you. Even if my desire is, I want to buy it from you, I'm going to pay you for it but I know that you don't want to part with it, but I desire to have something of yours that you do not want to part with, that is also prohibited. Says the Rambam, desiring leads to coveting and coveting leads to stealing. Because if the person is unwilling to give it up, even if you're willing to pay for it, eventually you may come to steal it. Or worse. To want something from another and he wants to give it to you, that's fine. The prohibition has two cascading levels, and both of them are prohibited. To want something from another who doesn't want you to have it, even though you're willing to pay for it, that's the first prohibition, desiring. And then the second layer, the second level is to want it so badly that you persuade and you pressure and you plan. And ultimately, you achieve your goal of getting what you want despite the objection and hesitate, hesitation of the owner, even if you pay for it. That is lo sachmod. Do not covet. And it applies to anything. It applies to tangible objects. It applies to something that is intangible. So... The prohibition against coveting is not just about wanting, it's also about being stubborn in the wanting. Now, why should that be prohibited? So the Sefer Achinach, Rabbi Aharon of Barcelona, writes the follows. Mishrashay HaMitzvadu, the root of this commandment, is because it is a very bad character trait to want, desire, covet what someone else has and they don't want to part with it as it will lead to even greater destruction. It would cause you 
to perhaps even steal it. And if they continue to refuse to indulge your coveting and you're not able to steal it, it might even lead to murder. As we see in the story of Achav and the vineyard of Navos. Now, this is a story from Sefer Malachim, the Book of Kings. So let's review this story. It is an awful, horrible, oh-so-practical story. Kerem Hayelin Navos Hayisraeli. Navos was a man, Yisraeli. He lived in Yisrael, the Jezreel Valley. It's in the northern part of Israel. He owned a vineyard. His vineyard was right next to the castle, the home of Ahav. Ahav, Ahab, was the king of the northern kingdom of Israel at that time. Achav said to Navos, give me your field, give me your vineyard, it's right next to my home. I'd like to be able to have it. I'm the king, you're a nobody, but I'm not going to take it from you. Let me buy it from you. Navos said no. No. God forbid. This vineyard has been in my family for centuries. It is my piece of the land of Israel that I own. I wouldn't give it up for anything. Achov came home and he was very upset. He was angry. He was depressed because Navos refused to sell him this little vineyard. Vayishka valmitaso Achav came home and he laid down in bed. Vayaseves panov and he turned his face to the wall. Velo ochal lechem and he refused to eat. Does that sound a little familiar? That's what Achav did. Batavo elav Izevel, Ishto, his wife, Izevel, Jezebel. She came and said, What's wrong? Why are you upset? Why aren't you eating? He said to her the whole story with Navos. He's got a vineyard. It's right there. I want it. He won't give it to me. He won't sell it to me. Izevel said to her husband, the king, you're the king. You have a right to whatever you want. Get up. Have something to eat. I'll take care of it. Don't worry. You want the field. You want the vineyard. I'll get it for you. Just come. Have some dinner. Okay. Izevel goes over to some people. And he says, and she says to them, 
I want you to come testify in court that this man, Navos, committed a crime, which is a capital crime, and he should be executed by the court. Of course, he did no such thing, but Izevel. So she was able to get witnesses to come to court, and they testified that this man, Navos, purely innocent, he had done this terrible sin, guilty of capital punishment, and the court decreed execution. And Navos was executed. Izevel came to her husband, she said, it's taken care of, and you don't have to pay for it. Navos is gone. It's yours. Enjoy it. <laughs> a few years ago, <laughs> a few years ago, an upscale kosher restaurant opened in New York in Soho. Very trendy, very expensive. And the name of the restaurant was Jezebel. <laughs> now, the restaurant didn't last very long, soon closed. But there was quite an outcry, especially on social media. How can you name a kosher restaurant after one of the most evil, wicked, cruel women in all of Jewish history? Okay. Let's get back to the story. So let me share with you the comment of Ralbag. Ralbag is one of our classic biblical commentators. And Ralbag says there's a very important lesson to learn from this narrative. Now, when I tell you this, you may disagree with what Ralbag says, and that's fine. It's going to sound very unfair, granted, but it is true. Nonetheless, now remember we said that the root of losachmod, of the prohibition against coveting, is not just to covet, to desire, to be jealous of what someone else has and to want to take it from them, but stubbornness, to be stubborn in wanting that. The Rabag says, Izevel and Achav they were wrong, of course. But Navos was also wrong. He should have given in. Not as a matter of law, but as a matter of life. And he paid for his stubbornness with his life. If there's one stubborn person, it's very difficult. When there are two stubborn people together, it's disastrous. And it can easily lead to destruction. There's a book that examines this problem. 
It's written by one of the greatest modern philosophers, one of the greatest modern writers of our time. Everyone should read this book. And if you are stubborn, or especially if you are sure that you're not stubborn, but for some reason people say that you're stubborn, then you should read this book once every day. It's short. I'll read it to you now. One day making tracks in the prairie of Prax came a north-going Zax and a south-going Zax. And it happened that both of them came to a place where they bumped. There they stood, foot to foot, face to face. Look here now, the north-going Zack said. I say, you're blocking my path. You are right in my way. I'm a north-going Zax, and I always go north. Get out of my way now and let me go forth. Who's in whose way, snapped the south-going Zax. I always go south, making south-going tracks. So you're in my way, and I ask you to move and let me go south in my south-going groove. Then the north-going Zax puffed his chest up with pride. I never, he said, take a step to one side, and I'll prove to you that I won't change my ways if I have to keep standing here fifty-nine days. And I'll prove to you, yelled the south-going Zax, that I can stand here in the prairie of Prax for fifty-nine years. For I live by a rule that I learned as a boy back in south-going school. Never budge. That's my rule. Never budge in the least. Not an inch to the west. Not an inch to the east. I'll stay here not budging. I can and I will. If it makes you and me and the whole world stand still. Well, of course, the world didn't stand still. The world grew. In a couple of years, a new highway came through. And they built it right over those two stubborn Zacks and left them there standing, unbudged, in their tracks. The Zacks by Dr. Seuss. My friends, I want to wish you a wonderful evening and a great Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.